0: There's a story that I wish to tell with this podcast. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast was to share my story um, of journeying through faith and doubt and being a minister and now not a minister, being very in the church and sort of walking away from the church. Um, This story has a lot of components for me and it's a story that I haven't really shared with a lot of people. Really, the only people who know my journey are those who've walked it with me. And um, when I started this podcast, I I wanted to share some of that journey with you. What's become clear to me is that um, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to articulate. And having never done this before in any sort of formal way, it's been a bit overwhelming. So the past few weeks, I've spent really thinking about how I wanted to tell this story and how I wanted to share this story with my audience. And I don't know that I'm doing it the best way, but I'm doing it the way that my brain works and the best way for me. There's so much to be said, and I feel that a lot of these stories I share and a lot of the thoughts I share and a lot of the experiences I share um, is just going to open up more... Questions for myself, and for uh, the Uncensored Wizard audience and community. Uh, so that and that's fine, and I've I've come to terms with that, um, resisting the urge to feel like I need to tell it all or share it all or even understand it all. Um, I'm, I'm I'm sort of pushing back against that urge and sticking with uh, sharing some of the core experiences that have uh, shaped my faith and my journey of faith so far. So, like I said, many would probably uh, refer to my journey as a journey of deconstruction, um, at least the past uh, several years. Uh, That's largely because deconstruction has become a very popular sort of descriptor and a very popular word for a whole generation of us who have decided to um, away from the church for various reasons of course no story is the same and so it's it's always tough when you have one word like deconstruction that becomes the label for an entire movement uh, that is happening in my generation and I don't mean just my age demographic but um, in my generation of, um, of church here in America particularly the evangelical church so I was several years into the process of um, of really refiguring my faith and rethinking my faith before I stumbled upon the word deconstruction. <clears throat> and actually a pastor friend of mine, Andrew Shipley, uh, met with me over coffee one morning shortly after I took the pastorate of the final church I pastored here. Um, and we were having coffee together and he started talking about You know his church and how many people in his church were going through deconstruction and you know, what's after deconstruction is the reconstruction and we had a very fascinating conversation and it was the first time that I had ever heard the word deconstruction and was the first time I ever used the word to sort of describe where I was at in my process, Um, but I never really used the word in any formal sense like even at my church or among my peers. You know, I never said, hey, I'm in deconstruction, or I'm going through deconstruction. <clears throat> and even a lot of the materials and content and blogs and things like that, that were being created at the time and are still being created, um, and all the articles and conversations, I just never felt like I really fit in with any of that completely. Um, I, 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 I'm obviously very diverse in my beliefs. I'm... Um, I'm all over the place in a lot of ways, and in this world that sort of demands certainty or you know cancellation uh i <laughs> i I'm somewhere in the middle of all of that, and so the word just never really uh set well with me um it also just never felt like a good descriptor I guess I never really saw myself as um you know taking the beliefs I was handed as as if they were some sort of structure, some sort of brick wall or some sort of room and then taking apart piece by piece and and looking at it. I, I never I never felt like that's what I was doing. I never felt like I, I'd come to a place in my life and just consciously said, you know, I'm going to take everything I've been taught this far and go through it piece by piece and decide what I feel about it. In fact, I'm literally just now doing that. I've got some podcasts I'm uh, planning for the future in which I'm going to go through statements of faith and basically share where I'm at on it <laughs> and that's something I've never done before. This project is, or this, excuse me, this podcast is sort of calling me into that. So uh, so that that was a whole new world for me and, and is a whole new world for me and I just never thought of my journey as, as being some sort of systematic process like that. In fact, for me, uh, deconstruction didn't really feel conscious at all. I wasn't even conscious that there was a word, a descriptor uh, for what i was going through and also when i was going through it i never really felt like anyone else was going through it with me it wasn't until i moved to charlotte several years ago that i realized oh i'm not the only one in my denomination in the evangelical church who is struggling with this there's an entire generation of us um, and now they have a label for it but for me uh, it wasn't a systematic. Sort of process, and it also wasn't a conscious activity in a lot of ways. That's like I said, it's not like I woke up and just decided to do it. And I feel like true deconstruction or what we are calling deconstruction um, really isn't or can't be just a conscious sort of endeavor, uh, especially for those of us who were indoctrinated in a belief system as children, because that belief system that we were indoctrinated with as children. Is very core uh, to our to our life and experience, and it's embedded deeply in our subconscious, especially if we were introduced to it in our formative years. And if that belief system included, you know, threats of hell or damnation or abandonment, <clears throat> which most evangelical theology does in one degree, you know, from one degree or another, um, it's a very unconscious sort of behavior when it comes to beliefs because. There's sort of this uh, wired in system of fear in questioning anything because if you question too much, you may um, begin to um, lose your certainty or lose your belief. And so as an unconscious activity, deconstruction isn't just a systematic process. As a friend once told me, and I resonate with this, it's an all out existential crisis. And it is because especially if you were indoctrinated as a child, it's an existential crisis because your whole life has been understood as existing for a certain reason and according to a certain uh, faith and worldview and belief system so i've come you know i've i've, I've become ambivalent about the use of the word deconstruction um, especially for my journey as a descriptor of what's actually happening um, i've especially become ambivalent about the term now that the evangelical church has co-opted it and uh, made it a cause to fight against. And some of you have saw those articles, some contemporary Christian artists and whatnot, you know, basically saying deconstruction is of the devil and we need to, uh, the church needs to rise up against it. I was actually quite triggered when I discovered that evangelical church was using the word deconstruction. I mean, I had left the church because I was like, okay, I'm going to do us both a favor, the church and myself, and just step away while I sort things out, and but damned if they didn't come after me anyway. It's like, oh no, you can't leave and sort things out. That's deconstruction, and damn it, we're gonna we're gonna come after those who are deconstructing because that's just a a, a movement of Satan. <laughs> um, so I yeah I just kind of have abandoned the term largely. I, I'm still going to use it when it's helpful, but uh, I still wanted a word, you know, a, a descriptor, and and I feel like. Um, Unraveling is a much better descriptor of, uh, of my experience. The reason I say unraveling is because it feels less like taking down a wall um, very systematically and very carefully in, in order to reconstruct it. And it feels more like realizing that the garments I was wearing... Um, Or even in my mind, I can. A good word picture I often see is like a sturdy rope, right? Um, But that this sturdy rope that I was handed, or that the garments I was handed, the threads that made them up over time just unraveled. And, you know, what it's left me with is a lot of threads, a lot of threads, and threads that. You know, kind of run through my life threads that run through my experience, threads that run through the way I read scripture and the biblical narrative, um, threads that run through my theology. Like all these various types of threads that sort of make up the person that I am, that sort of um, clothe the person that I am, even to some degree. And I'm really, really struggling. I'm with the language here, but I, I, I hope you, you, you get what I'm saying, that at, at some point, you know, what I had was good, and it worked, and it served its purpose, but over time, the threads have, have become unraveled. And, you know, I am, as I said, taking this unraveling now to the next step, where I'm literally going to take each belief as sort of, check it and see what I have left, what threads are good enough for me to continue to use and which threads, you know, have served their purpose and it's time for them to, to be cut out. Um, so I'm going to be doing that, but foundational to that foundational to the belief systems, I guess I should say, um, Are the experiences. And I say foundational because for me, the unraveling didn't come as a theological exercise. It came as sort of a central part of my lived experience as a pastor. Okay? Um, And that's again the difference between the conscious and subconscious way of going at it this you know people sometimes say to me well you school really messed you up you went to school and you you know it changed the way you think about the faith and it's so so far off base because for me the unraveling began with experiences experiences that made me question and made me reconsider some beliefs and so on that level the experience is sort of is sort of foundational to the process it's it's foundational it's the launching pad if nothing else uh, and so what i want to do over the next uh, few episodes and i'm going to interdisperse some some um, some of the belief episodes with this but what i want to do over the next little while is is uh, talk about the core events in my life as a person and as a pastor that have contributed to the unraveling of my faith as i knew it So the first church I pastored was a church in the mountains of North Carolina. It was a rural Pentecostal church, part of the Church of God, uh, which is the denomination that I grew up in. I'm going to talk a lot about the Church of God on this podcast because it's my best point of reference. I understand it's a very small part of the church, universal, and a very small part of the evangelical church in America, but it is my experience. And the first church I pastored was in the mountains and it was very much like the church I grew up in okay I would say that that church was the first and last church I pastored that I would consider a true classical Pentecostal church okay Um, which the Church of God is a classical Pentecostal denomination but as a pastor coming into this church I was I was a very young man and coming into this church I had really not been exposed to a lot of lives to a lot of other homes or a lot of other people or a lot of other experiences than the one that I grew up in I was I was fresh out of high school I had only been at this church about a year year and a half working on staff before I became the pastor of this church and This church, even though it was very much like the classical Pentecostal church of my upbringing, it also was different. And those differences started something in me, began a a questioning in me, began a reconsidering of things in myself because of of several of the uh, very distinct um, characteristics of that church. So... One of the first things that was really different about this church than the church i grew up in was that in this church the oldest generation of members were mostly politically democrat okay Um, and the ones who weren't democrat and i'm talking about the older members the people who like were have been in the church since you know they bought the new pews 50 years ago and this was in you know the year 2003. And so, but this generation of people, they were they were largely political, politically Democrat, and the ones who weren't preferred that you just not talk about politics in the church. And, you know, I, at this stage in my life, had political convictions. A lot of them received from my church and from my upbringing. But at this time in, in, in history and just in my own life, um, I didn't really think... Think of it as being um as, as, as being that radical to to ask that politics just be left out of church, especially in a church where a large portion of the congregation were were Democrat. And you might be listening and thinking, well, what is the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that this was a whole new territory for me in terms of, of church. In fact, when I first discovered this and when I discovered some of the older saints who I considered to be, you know, the truest examples of individuals following the teachings of Jesus and were filled with the spirit, finding out that they were Democrat, I was like, Whoa, this is so different for me. This is brand new territory because in the church of my youth, it was just sort of understood that you could not be a Christian and be a Democrat. All right, I mean, I remember being taught very early on by my parents and in church, Democrats kill babies because of abortion, and we can't support them. And that wasn't just a rural church thing, okay? That was, or even regional. Now, that's not like a Southern Christianity thing or a Southern Pentecostal thing. Um, it was, it was pretty, pretty denominational wide. So I was a college student at Lee University. Um, at the time of the 2000 uh, election. I was a student at the Charlotte Center, which was an extension of Lee University here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, you know, for those, you know, who, who remember the um, the intensity of that 2000 election, you know, with Bush challenging the results in Florida, uh, this is whole election debacle of hanging chads and all of this, I was in college as a highly impressionable 19-year-old at the time, and I I can recall multiple conversations at lunch and even in the classroom where we talked about the situation. And at the time, I couldn't tell you now what was said, but what I can tell you is at the time, I received all of that as a message that true Christians could not be Democrats. And that what was happening was demonic. I I remember someone telling me it's demonic what's happening in Florida. They're trying to, the Democrats are trying to steal the election away from the godly Republicans. And, you know, it was also emphasized, or at least I received it as being emphasized, that it was our godly calling and our Christian duty to support and to vote for Republicans. So I come to my first church and discover that the oldest generation of people there, and the people who have really lived out a testimony of being faithful Christians, are Democrats. Um, but it wasn't an issue. I mean, really, the church at the time, and we're talking when I first took the church in 03, there was a lot of unity. You know, this is three years after the 2000 election debacle, but there's a lot of unity just around the mission and the vision of the church. We're a very family-oriented church, meaning that we feel like a family. And, you know, it was weird for me to be pastoring a church full of Democrats, a church of God, because I knew that that just really didn't fit with the denomination um, and and with the belief system, not only of Pentecostalism, but of larger evangelicalism in America at the time. Um, So it wasn't really a problem until... (laughs) The election of 2004, damn those elections, right? Uh, and in the election of 2004, um, things things changed at that church. What happened during my, my time at that church was the church grew, and we picked up a lot of younger families. And um, a lot of those younger families transferred in from other churches of God in the area, And they joined the church, and they were very active. And, you know, over time, a lot of this new blood, if you will, these new uh, members stepped into leadership roles. They became Sunday school teachers and, you know, ministry leaders and and things of, of that nature. So this younger generation comes in, and most of them had adopted the denominational expectation that if you were a Christian... You, you had to vote Republican, okay? And many of them did not realize that they were coming to a church where a lot of the elders in the faith and elder membership of the church were not Republican, and they weren't going to vote Republican in the 04 election even. So, um, one Sunday morning... <laughs> I'm sitting in my office. Sunday school is happening. Um, we would have Sunday school, you know, for an hour before the main service started, and I wasn't on for another hour. I was in my study, uh, looking over the sermon notes, getting ready. When I got a knock on the door, and I opened the door, and it was one of those sweet older saints, and she told me that I needed to come because the Sunday school teacher. For our main Sunday school class, we had a main class in the sanctuary. Which, you know, if you were a visitor and you're, it was your first time to church, and you got to church early, you would you would go to that class and be part of it until church service started. So it was a very important Sunday school class. It was the main, you know, the main sanctuary Sunday school class. And um, I was told to come because the Sunday school teacher for that class was telling the class that there was no way they could serve God and, and vote for John Kerry. <laughs> so I made my way to the sanctuary and uh, walked into a very emotional scene in which a very deeply committed Sunday school teacher, I knew him and his family personally. And, you know, I, like I said, up until this issue, up until this time, we had really not had an issue. And I find him in front of the church weeping Uh, very emotional tears streaming down his face imploring the saints who had basically during the Sunday school class called him out for saying what he had said about voting Republican and there he is emotionally imploring them to please be careful not to be deceived because if we weren't careful we were going to elect a baby-killing gay-loving president under Satan's control. I didn't get that incident sorted out that morning. We eventually did and came to an understanding that we're just going to leave politics out of the Sunday school class. But that, that incident and the division that it caused that morning um, to our otherwise unified church left me with a lot of questions, y'all. It, 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 it's the beginning of the unraveling for me. It left me with a lot of questions about faith and politics. It left me with some questions about the certainty of my denomination and you know about the effects of bringing political opinions, especially divisive ones, ones in which you draw a line and tell people they're on one side or the other. What kind of effect it had on the church? And these were questions I had never really asked myself. Again, I'm a young man. I had never really asked myself the the hard questions about faith and politics so that's one of those core memories that uh, that I can identify as as being the the unraveling for me or the beginning of it now this church was different obviously um, than a lot of the Pentecostal churches in uh, in my experience especially Church of God churches Another thing unique about this church, or maybe I should say about my experience of church when I pastored in that part of the mountains of North Carolina, was that the Pentecostal churches still felt very fringe, okay, and and I, and I, fringe by design, all right. And uh, th- this is this is uh, the posture that early Pentecostals took. Early Pentecostals were fringe. By design. And um, by, by that I mean, in, in early Appalachian Pentecostalism, when you look at the roots of the Church of God even, there was a time in which Pentecostals would not have church at the same time all the other churches were having church, a.k.a. 10 o'clock in the morning on Sundays, because they wanted the church to be open to anyone to come right and to, to participate whether you were baptist or methodist the idea was is that we're not here to be our own church we're here to be a movement of the spirit among all churches and you know from 1900 to 1920 that that seems to be um, part of uh, part of the pentecostal experience but at some point that changed and the church of god became a little bit more of an exclusive denomination uh, instead of being a movement that wasn't tied to a church, now it becomes a church. At some point in the history of the Church of God, for instance, and I I would put it at the time we wrote our Declaration of Faith, which is the doctrinal belief. But but at some point they started to formulate their emerging beliefs as doctrinal statements, and they changed the church times to the same church time as everyone else. And then they begin the journey of, of basically trying to be like all the other churches, you know, the main ta- mainstream churches, the churches that existed on the other side of the tracks from us, the better side of the tracks from the Pentecostals, if you will. Uh, we, we decided to sort of enter that foray. And, and a really bizarre thing happened in the, in the 50s uh, through the 70s. In the Church of God, we started kicking people out disfellowshipping them from the local churches for going to other churches (laughs) not just non-pentecostal churches either but in the mountains the churches around there the the pentecostal churches not because there was a church of god there was a lot of other pentecostal churches in that area and all of them sort of had this spirit of um of being a big tent kind of church right you know where everyone's welcome under it and you know there there were churches in the mountains that still did Saturday services and Sunday afternoon services so that you could go to your home church and still come to theirs but within the church of god uh, we started kicking people out for it and so at this church in the mountains there was a con- there was a, there was a conflict of 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 uh, Gosh, I hate to say it, maybe but like cultures between the Church of God denominational culture and the larger Pentecostal community in that in that part of, of, of the area. And so one day I I found the the church council minute book from like meetings that they had during the 50s, 60s, and 70s and went through it and I discovered that for uh, for almost a decade, the, the, the 1960s and 1970s decade, if I remember correctly, over 500 members were kicked out of the church for various doctrinal offenses, one of the primary ones being disloyalty. And one of the cases had a footnote in it that said that this particular member their argument was, "I was just going to hear my family member preach at this other church." Uh, they were still disfellowshipped, according to the council notes. So this is another one of those incidences. You know, finding this history, seeing the way in which my 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 Church of God existed within the larger Pentecostal church in that area, um, how exclusive we had become rather than inclusive left me with lots of questions y'all it just did it left me asking questions about doctrine and beliefs and uh, the effects of, of what it means to go all in on our desire to be certain about our beliefs and by all in meaning that we, we want to force everyone else to believe what we believe because we are right you know the church of God used to have a song the church of God is right hallelujah to the lamb and there was this this real emphasis on certainty, and you know, going through this left me feeling some kind of way about that level of certainty. I mean, if that level of certainty leaves you kicking people out of the church because they went to other churches, how important and helpful is certainty at all? Um, it left me questioning things about. Um, the church's desire to have homogeneity in beliefs and in practice. That's a big thing in the Pentecostal church, right? Uh, we all need to look the same, act the same, worship the same. Even in a church service, God isn't moving unless everyone gets in on the move, you know, or at, at least a large majority. you got to have critical mass. This last one probably left the most lasting impact on me. That little church in the mountains had an unusually high number of homosexual parishioners. <clears throat> We're talking about a small church of less than a 100 in the rural area, in a rural area of North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina. I did not know any gay people at my church of God growing up. There was a couple of questions around one couple. Um but in general, you just like homosexual people, gay people did not come to our Church of God church. But they did. This one and I was their pastor, okay? Uh, And maybe that's why I knew. Maybe they did come to my other church. But as a pastor, I just didn't know. But as a pastor, I learned. You know, some of them came out to me. Others did not. But I knew, you know, through things that happened (laughs) while I was there. uh, Things that were revealed while I was there. Life is messy. Families are messy. Things come out. And I learned that a a good group of of men in that church were gay. Now, in the Church of God, um, homosexuality is is its own category of sin. A good example of how we treat it as its own category, and this may have changed. I haven't been in the Church of God for a few years, um, so maybe it's changed now. But I don't think it has. In the Church of God... If you get caught committing adultery, you lose as a minister. You lose your ministerial license or your ordination, uh, whichever is um, applicable. But you can get your license back if you if you commit adultery in the Church of God. You know, as long as the adultery wasn't committed uh, with a member of the same sex. So if you had homosexual sex. And that was your that was your sin of adultery. You could never get your license back. Homosexuals were not allowed um, or, or anyone who had committed a homosexual act was not allowed to get their their ordination back. So it was very, very uh, interesting that we had uh, so many gay men there. Um, they were mostly closeted. Um Some were married, and they were married to mask to fit in. Uh, some of those who were married were miserable. Um, some were had found balance in it, and safety and security. And um, you know, some were not married and were out, and some were just closeted and just didn't share it with anyone. But they were all amazing, amazing people. All of them, just amazing men. Talented, gifted, they loved people, they were loving members of the community and the church. Um, Some of them taught Sunday school, and and, you know, the, the closeted ones. Would teach Sunday school and they would lead ministries. And this was all allowed in the church as long as they were living right. And I, I upheld that. Looking back, I, I, I did a lot of things because it's what I was trained to do. But the idea was hey, as long as you're not sinning currently, you can serve. So, you know, there was one guy there who would go through phases, you know, phases where he would be celibate, if you will. And at those times he was living right, and he would come back to church, get involved, and we openly welcomed him to be involved. But as soon as he started falling in you know falling for someone or entering a relationship or desiring sex, he would just politely leave the church and work through it, and then come back, start living right. but it was torture it really was it was torture on so many of these guys um And I found all of them to be good people exhibiting fruits of the spirit, bringing their gifts of the spirit to the church. And I was young and watching them struggle with their sexuality and their constant feelings of unworthiness. It it left me with lots of questions. It just it just just did not sit well with me. And... um, and then seeing how God didn't cure them. You know, there's one guy in particular who I knew would just, he would come to the altars every service and just pray and pray. People would lay their hands on him. And it was like three, you know, supposed deliveries while I was his pastor. But none of them stuck. <laughs> you know, just seeing that God didn't cure them or sanctify them, right? We, we were taught that the Holy Spirit would sanctify you from all sin, take away even your very desire for it. Uh, and seeing how none of that really worked, none of the juju or the praying or the screaming or the in and out or the just beating yourself up, none of it changed their their sexual orientation. And um, you know that that left an left an impact on me, you know. It was like we were we were teaching a doctrine that oversold itself and under underdelivered. Um, we we were teaching a doctrine that excluded people from God's love and deep in our hearts I think we all knew there was nothing wrong with these men I think we all knew these men were good spirit filled loving individuals obviously we knew that we let them serve as long as they met our behavioral standards because we knew deep down um, that that What they brought to the table was good for the community and good for the kingdom of God. While I was there, one of the gay men died. And he died at a stage in his life where he wasn't, and I'm doing air quotes here, where he wasn't living right. And the circumstances in which he passed um, would have outed him. Would have outed him as a gay man. His family was very, very ashamed about his death, and they were very ashamed that he was gay. He was well-respected in the church. Not everyone knew he was closeted. He was out to me and some spiritual leaders, but no one else. And um, they asked me to preach his funeral. And before the funeral, the family asked me, they said, we know what he was doing and we don't want you to preach him into heaven, which is a term we use in the church about doing funerals so that we don't you know, make someone sound like they went to heaven when they weren't living right. And so this family said, we don't want you to preach him into heaven, but we also don't want you to tell about his life and embarrass him and embarrass us. That made me feel some kind of way. The shame that this family fell and the thought that God was burning this individual that they loved forever and ever and ever in hell because he loved another man, and then being asked, and I hold no ill will to this family, i but to be asked to not paint this person as being worthy of heaven, but also not paint this person as a homosexual or as a gay man, seemed like a total stripping away of this person's story and identity at a time of eulogizing when we're given a sacred moment to say some final words about who this person was to us in the truest sense of their personhood. This family wanted me, just like the church wants, all, all the time, over and over again, they wanted to control the narrative to make sure we didn't give permission to others but to also acknowledge the feeling we all had in our heart that this person was worthy of saying good things about and of sharing a good testimony about as long as we didn't mention, you know, that gay stuff. I'd say there's probably a lot a lot more incidents and many more events that started the unraveling for me at this first church. But those are, th- those are three of the most important ones. Three of the most important ones. I was young and pastoring put me in the lives of people in a way that I had never been exposed to before. And, and for that, I am thankful. I am thankful that it happened at a young age. I feel like I probably started pastoring way too young. On the other hand, I'm thankful that I did because at a very young age, I learned that the world and our lives as humans is filled with complexity and uncertainty and gray areas, but also filled with love and beauty. And it seemed to me that the more I got involved in people's lives and in the life of the community, it seemed to me that love and beauty were much more certain to the human experience than faith and doctrine were. And they were, they, they were. They were much more certain on a very real and a very lived experience. I was 26 years old when I left that church to pastor another. My time there was the beginning of of building a new life with my family. I got married while I was there. I had kids while I was there. Became a dad. Became a grown-up, if you will. Had my first full-time job. Also my first bills. <laughs> it, was the, it was a time of, of starting my life, but it was also the beginning of me seeing the faith and religion of my youth unravel. More to come.